Dunkin' Holder is brought to you by Game Time, your new go-to app for the best details on last-minute tickets. Did you know Saints ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? Game Time tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute details with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. And I've literally just downloaded the Game Time app. It goes right to where your city is. The first game I'm looking at, Auburn at LSU. The next one in the top pick, 49ers at Saints. So definitely go check that out. So head to the App Store and Play Store now to download Game Time and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dad, who dat stuff? Who dat, you know, that's really kind of a, a fan, you know, that's that's our our, our chant. Junk and Holder Podcast back at you, episode 17, 19, 300. I have no idea at this point. All I know is the Saints keep winning. 5-0 and under Teddy Bridgewater, 6-1 and overall. Uh, the Saints beat up on the Chicago Bears unexpectedly, I'd say. And Jeff, you're still in Chicago, so we're going to talk with Jeff remotely from there. Of course, LSU uh, goes to Mississippi State. Slow start, but picks it up. And then uh, we saw the, you know, it's the posterity shot heard around the world. I'm sure we'll forever hear about that going forward from Joe Burrow. I headed up to Tulane, Memphis, Tulane, a big disappointing loss. Uh, might take a little while for them to get back into the AP Top 25 talk, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And, of course, if you're listening in this pod, uh, this is our freebie. So you can go check that out, Apple, Spotify, uh, subscribe to it, rate, review, do all those good things. Uh, give uh, Duncan Holder a little bit of love here on the Athletics Podcast Network. But, Jeff, you're still in Chicago, about to head back to New Orleans and look, you and me have covered plenty of games there before, and I'm sure you were walking into that game the same way I was walking into that game. Well, at least I didn't I figuratively walk in the game. You literally did. And uh, thought it would be a low-scoring affair, and then all of a sudden, the Saints got on a roll, and uh, to me, one of the more impressive wins of the season, and we've had a lot of impressive wins in the season for the Saints so far. Yeah, I thought... It would be a nail-biter in the fourth quarter, kind of a similar game to the Cowboys' uh, 12-10 to 10 affair we saw a few weeks ago, and it was anything but. I, I have to say, the Bears are in trouble. I mean, that was a pretty lame performance. If you're a Bears fan, you're at home, you're coming off a bye, you had an embarrassing loss in London, you have it two weeks to stomach that, and that's the performance you got uh, out of Mitch Trubisky, uh, I think they're in serious problem. Uh, they have serious problems in Chicago, and I don't think they're going to correct it anytime soon. But credit the Saints. Uh, you know, you've written it. Uh, Sean Payton, Coach of the Year. Uh, I wrote it today. I mean, he's he and his staff. And I think sometimes we give a little too much credit to Sean. I mean, he is the head coach, but this entire staff is just coaching its tail off right now. Uh, the game plans have been great. And the Saints just look so much better prepared, so much more uh, confident in what they're doing. They're buying in to what Dennis Allen, Sean Payton, Pete Carmichael are drawing up on each side of the ball. And for them to be able to put up 36 points, it could have been more. They left some points on the board 
and 424 yards. This was the sixth-ranked defense in the league coming in. No one had scored that many points or that many yards against them in three years. And to do it with a makeshift hodgepodge lineup without Drew Brees, Alvin Kamara, Jared Cook, Traquan Smith, uh, that was remarkable. I mean, there's no other word for it. And uh, I don't know anything's going to slow down this train right now. They're so confident, and they're playing with such momentum right now. Uh, it's almost a shame they're going to have a bye week in two weeks. Well, it might not be a shame if you want to get those bodies healthy. I mean, so in that sense, uh, it, 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 you, you might want to uh, slow them down. But it doesn't seem like anything's going to really slow them down. And I know there could have been the excuse, well, Akeem Hicks, he was a big piece of the puzzle missing in the middle. But that Bears defense is typically good. Uh, has so many other big pieces. And all I know is uh, you look, you could look at the skill position players like, of course, Teddy Bridgewater uh, getting the job done. Latavius Murray having one of his better games in quite some time in the NFL. Uh, Michael Thomas still being Michael Thomas. But Jeff, uh, to me, I think the biggest factor was that Teddy Bridgewater, his uh, white, almost uh, onesie jerseys that they're wearing with the white shirts and the white pants, uh, was extremely clean outside of him taking off and running because Khalil Mack was never on his back at all. Uh, and that's a huge credit to Ryan Ramchek and to Ron Armstead because he was hopping sides. So just goes to show you uh, just those tackles in general. Uh, it's hard to argue that the Saints don't have the best pair uh, in the NFL with Armstead and Ramchek. Well, Larry, you and I have talked about it a bunch of times, and I think the biggest difference between this current iteration of the Saints and, say, the Super Bowl group is I think both lines are better than the, even the Super Bowl team. And the, Saint, the Saints had a great offensive line. They had, a, I would say, above-average defensive line, but certainly not a dominant defensive line on the Super Bowl uh, team. But right now, their lines, they're just bullying people on both sides of the ball. They're owning the line of scrimmage. And, the, you know, the old, uh, you know, I guess, take on the Saints was always they were kind of a finesse team with Drew Brees and a passing offense. Uh, that's been out the window for a few years now, but it's really out the window now. I mean, the Saints dominated the Bears along both lines of scrimmage. If the offensive line could have such a thing as a perfect game, I think yesterday would have been it. 151 rushing yards. Uh, there was only one sack in the game. You're right, Khalil Mack. At one point in the third quarter, I turned to some of my colleagues, and I was like, is Khalil Mack even in the game? i had been watching him, but he just was a non-factor. And I think these two lines of scrimmage just goes to show you, these two lines, I should say, that it doesn't matter who's on the on the perimeter for the Saints right now. I mean, you could have a bunch of uh, undrafted rookies out there like they had yesterday and Mike Thomas, and you could still put up points because the line's so dominant. And Jeff, when you look at just the rushing totals, like you said, uh, it's it's impressive to see what Latavius Murray did and the fact that they rode him for 27 carries. Uh, that's not something you would typically see out of an Alvin Kamara either. I think they felt like, all right, he's a back. He's kind of a north and south back. Let's kind of ground and pound. Uh, he also had five catches for 31 yards. But, Jeff, look, that's his. Uh, that's Murray's game. I mean, 4.4 yards a carry. Uh, his longest run was 17 yards, two touchdowns. It seemed like uh, every time the Saints wanted four, five, six yards of pop, they were able to get it with Murray. And it's something to me that I, I think it, it, and I read some of the comments from Murray after the game, how it's been a while since he's had that much of a workload. And he, it's not going to be a regular thing. Maybe if, if Kamara is still not ready to go this week, 
uh, that Murray gets the same thing when the Saints take on the Cardinals. But uh, look, I've said it a lot, and I know you've said it a lot, that we didn't think Latavius Murray was going to be uh, as good within the offense as Mark Ingram. And I don't think he has to be overall, but in like a pinch like this for him to be so good, uh, like I, I think you got to give him credit and give uh, kind of that offensive line and the, and the Saints kind of run game plan credit for kind of having some trust in him. Yeah, and I think I think the 27 carries was a byproduct of the game circumstances. I mean, they, they got a big lead and then they started milking the clock and, and trying to just get, get to the finish line. But I, I, the thing that also impressed me, Larry, was he caught five passes for 31 yards. We haven't seen a lot of that from Latavius Murray. And I just keep going back to the, the job of the coaching staff. Look, Murray played extremely well. I thought some of those first down carries especially where he was getting, you know, six yards or seven yards, that's huge to, to be able to stay behind the chains, as they say, in favorable down and distance situations. Conversely, the Bears had seven rushing attempts in the game, Larry. That's a, that's a record for the Saints. Fewest rushing attempts in the history of the Saints franchise by an opponent. 17 yards. I mean, they couldn't get any yards on the ground. And Sean Payton talked about that afterward in his post-game press conference, that the difference in the running game for both teams was really the difference in the game because it put so much pressure on Mitch Trubisky to try and make something on second and third and long. And let's face it, at this stage of his career, he's just not capable of it. And you look at someone like Tariq Cohen, uh, three carries, 10 yards. His longest run was nine. So he got a nine-yard run, and then his other two were nothing. Then he had nine receptions. I can't. This is impossible. Nine receptions for nineteen yards. Yep. And his longest reception was nine yards. That, that to me, I don't even know how that you can have that. That that many catches in that few yards. That just goes to show you, just kind of the tackling prowess and just the way the Saints defense was reading this. I mean, they just knew they could they could do whatever they wanted really against that that Bears offense, and and it showed. Yeah, and Trubisky came into the game, I think, with like an average of 5.5 yards per pass attempt. I think it was like 37th in the league, way down from what he was at a year ago. So they got some major issues on the offensive side of the ball, and it didn't get any better yesterday. The Saints, uh, you know, how many times have we watched Marcus Williams from the press box, Larry, and you look at him, he's 15 yards back playing center field. Yesterday he was about 10 yards from the line of scrimmage. That's how little respect they had, the Saints had, for the deep passing game on the Bears' side of the field. And they just crowded the line of scrimmage, and the Bears did nothing to try and uh, take them deep. I don't know if they didn't feel confident they could hold up in the pass in the pass protection, but Saints had a great game plan both sides of the ball. But I keep going back to the offensive game plan. When you consider you know, Latavius Murray is, a, is a, mainly a backup, I think, uh, you've got Zach Zanner, a guy that just joined the team a week ago. Uh, Zach Line, uh, kind of an anonymous fullback. Dan Arnold, just activated, undrafted free agent. Um, uh, Dwayne Washington, a guy that was picked up off the scrap heap a year ago. Uh, just a bunch of guys like that uh, in the offensive game plan. They spread the ball around. Ten different players targeted. Eight, eight different players caught passes. Five different players ran the ball. We knew they had to get creative to manufacture points and yards without Kamara and Breeze and, and, and the other guys, and they did it. It was just an amazing performance. And I don't want to take away from the players. I, you know, I don't want to put too much on the coaches, but I really do feel like 
if the Saints had a bunch of different players, they still would have been successful because the Saints are so smart with their game plan. And I did, I do think Teddy Bridgewater played very well again. Uh, he's getting better and better every week. And Jeff, you mentioned the coaching staff. You and me have talked about it heading into the season that this coaching staff probably isn't long to be together one more year because teams are coming after them. I'm surprised that so few uh, that the staff stayed in it's such intact. And I think you wrote about this uh, during uh, training camp, how the staff is so intact that uh, it lends itself to this. I mean, and it's all veteran coaches and uh, it's, it's, you can't take that away from it. And then yet we could talk about all the distribution of, uh, of this and that. And yet guess who's going to get the ball more often than not in the passing game. And, Still does it. It's amazing to me. I know. Everyone in the building knows Michael Thomas is going <laughs> to get the get ball. It. I don't get it either. Nine <laughs> catches, 131 yards. And everyone knows Teddy's looking for him. Everyone knows Drew's would be Drew would be looking for him. And again, look, the Bears have a pretty stout secondary and, yep. and this defense, and they had no answers for Mike Thomas. It's amazing. It's funny uh, how earlier uh, last week our Chicago uh, colleague, Dad Pompey, <laughs> Did a big story on Mike Thomas, and he delivered in Chicago. Just, I guess it's maybe uh, just a little appropriate, maybe. Yeah, I was in the press box at one point yesterday turning to colleagues saying, do the Bears know that Mike Thomas is the leading receiver in the NFL? I mean, they, I don't know what they were doing. He was wide open on a few plays. And with considering who the other options were for the Saints offense, I guarantee you if Sean Payton and Dennis Allen were coaching against the Saints – they would have taken Mike Thomas out of the game somehow. They would have definitely not allowed him to do what he did yesterday. I, I don't know what the Bears were doing. You know, I, they played fairly well for a while defensively, uh, hanging in the game, but that was mostly the result of of the Saints. You know, missing a field goal here. You know, getting a a, a punt call back. I, I will say this: I did watch it again. Uh, Sean Payton called out the officials, which was very rare of him, but. I do think Zach Lyon held on that. When I watched it again, it looked like he had a full handful of jersey and was pulling the guy down. But the point is, it wasn't so much the, the Bears' defense uh, dominating as it was the Saints uh, leaving some points on the scoreboard that they could have had. Yeah, and then just letting points up later in the game, which I'm sure uh, Darren Rizzi uh, and Phil Gagliano yep. are going to practice uh, fielding an onside kick probably for <laughs> – uh, the rest of their life in New Orleans because that was pretty atrocious. I mean, and, and it seemed like and someone on Twitter actually pointed out the strategy that the Bears almost purposely kicked it short to have uh, the Saints maybe try to take a gamble and you're uncertain because the way that onside kicks are, they're basically, if you kick it 10 yards, it's impossible to recover because of the, the rule changes. So I, I'd probably got to credit the Bears a little bit on their strategy, but my gosh, the Saints... Michael Thomas looked like he was floundering like a, like a fish on the side of the pier uh, trying to die for that football. And then Dwayne Washington does is oblivious, and the ball hits him. I mean, that was brutal. Good thing the Saints were up big in that game. But, but yeah, of all phases, look, we've been leaning on special teams a lot this season. Uh, and, Jeff, that, that phase was a little sluggish when you look at punting. You look at the return game uh, before the big return. Uh, Deontay Harris made a mistake on the on the kickoff, and then Darren Rizzi was going after him, and then 
Uh, even with two block punts, you're still wondering, man, what it was a it was a, a topsy turvy day for that unit. Yeah, well, I thought the block punt to start by JT Gray was huge, right? It, it reminded me so much of the Seahawks game, where you go in, you know it's going to be kind of a slugfest game, and you immediately get a three and out stop, and then a punt block could have been a touchdown. It's a great play by their punter to avoid a touchdown, um, but what a scheme! to get JT Gray in there. And I asked Sean Payton about it afterwards, and he said they did not have a punt block on. It was just a straight rush. They did a little a little twist at the line of scrimmage, and he came clean. So it wasn't like something that they saw and felt like they could get, but it, it worked out perfectly. And I thought that helped set the tone again, where they got the lead early in a game in a, in a defensive battle. And uh, Deontay Harris... He had a couple of just great returns, even that didn't amount to, you know, obviously points or anything, but they were 10-yard returns, 9-yard returns that he made out of nothing that also helped in the field position. But the rest of it was shakier than normal. And I have to give Will Lutz a little bit of a pass just because it was a tough day to kick. Uh, You know, it was very wet and kind of humid, a lot of fog. Uh, I think it was going to be hard to get much distance in that type of environment there today. It was lot, yesterday there was a lot of wind. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I thought the early start by the special teams kind of helped set the tone. Yeah, look, Zach Line also blocked the punt too, uh, even though it's still the punt got off, but still he blocked the punt. Yep. And uh, look, it, it's funny. He, how often are we calling out his name? He has the blocked punt, he has the shaky hold, and then he <laughs> has the option pitch, which was glorious. It's, it, you were, I remember when I saw that play – uh, because I'm, I was at home, uh, rarely watching on game uh, on TV, and I saw uh, Taysom Hill kind of as that deep back, and I was like, "Oh, I wonder what's going to happen here." So uh, <laughs> it was a pretty cool play design for sure, and I'm sure it's one that they might be able to throw back into the into the fray at, at some point. And so, but yeah, I'd say overall. Uh, look, it's funny to see Zach Line's name kind of mentioned so many times. But Jeff, let's let's zero back in on the defense because uh, like Mitch Trubisky, sure he's he's bad, and the Bears they don't have a lot of playmakers. But still, you've got to be able to make the plays. And I feel like the Saints they were just aggressive in knowing what was coming, uh, making sure tackles. And Jeff, we we've seen this team. Uh, only really struggle one make game, maybe two, maybe the first two games it was a little bit of a struggle to, to make some tackles. But ever since then, it has just been, boy, if you are in the Saints' grasp, that you are going down. And it, it sounds so elementary and simple, yet the Saints do it so well, which is why their defense is one of the best in the league. Yeah, it's the best defense they've had, in my opinion, uh, in the Peyton Breeze era because it's so solid across the board. There's no real weaknesses. I think the entire secondary tackles really well, and that's an important factor. That hadn't always been the case. They're tackling since that Rams game. They've tackled extremely well. Now, we don't know how injured Eli Apple is. That was a very tough break. I mean, he got injured literally in the last minute of the game. Looked like he lost his footing on on a you know like a painted logo in the end zone. Maybe that had something to do with the, the slip. But he wrenched his knee, and it didn't look good. I mean, he immediately grabbed his knee when he went to the ground. And he did walk off the field uh, under his own power, but he was kind of gimpy. And we know that knee injuries, uh, you can walk with a torn ACL. I- I'm-, I'm living proof of that. I don't have an ACL in either knee. So 
Uh, it could be something significant, even though he did walk off on his own power. Obviously, people, uh, we should all hope that's not the case because he's played very well this year. I've been a critic of Eli Apple in the past, but uh, it's hard to be a critic of the way he's playing this year. I mean, he's been lights out alongside Marshawn Lattimore, and a big reason why this defense has kind of come of age this season. Yeah, and after the game, um, his mom, Annie Apple, who is, of course, really uh, prolific on social media, she took video of him walking off uh, off the, you know, with his luggage and all this stuff. So, it did, look, he's walking, and it seems like, it, it, in that point, it looks like he's walking and he's okay. And uh, our our own athletic colleague, Nick Underhill, reporting that it, the the – the sense is it's a hyperextension, so uh, if it's not something totally significant, I would think the Saints would err on the side of caution and not play him next week. But you look at Patrick Robinson went out, P.J. Williams is out. Uh, at least for one week, the, that other side of the field, at corner might be shaky. Now, Jeff, uh, just uh, as far as that nickel corner spot, we saw uh, C.J. Gardner-Johnson get in there and play, and to me, Jeff, he looked the part the entire time. I mean, he's flying around on special teams as always, but, boy, to me, he looked the part. I know it's the Bears, but first day he really saw big-time extended action. I feel like he played pretty well just from my initial thoughts. Yeah, and he's a he's a very sure tackler, you know. I mean, he we saw him last week tackle Leonard Fournette in the open field to uh, – prevent a first down, and he was all over the place yesterday. I mean, he made a huge tackle on the very first play of the game, filled the filled a running lane. Yeah, I think he's going to end up being one of these versatile chess pieces for Dennis Allen and a guy that can kind of play all over the field. We also forgot about JT Gray. I mean, he went out of the game as well. And I think with him out of the game, they had to put Marcus Williams in on kickoff coverage, and I think that was one of the reasons why Patterson was able to go the distance. Uh, if you notice, Marcus Williams missed a tackle on that. Um, he did miss the tackle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> tried to, and that shows you how, how strong Patterson is because he, he came at him pretty high and he just ran right through it. Uh, but point is, you're, you, they got a lot of injuries. So yeah, you're right. The the the, the bye week comes at a good time because the, these injuries are starting to mount in the last couple of weeks, and the Saints could sure use the extra time to get to get well. Now, Jeff, the big story that uh, it's funny that I'm, I'm sitting at home watching with my wife, and, you know, she says, you don't get to hear what the commentators say as the game's going on. And no, I, we typically don't because we're in the press box and the, the feed's not getting pumped in. So when, uh, you know, Tom Brenneman and Troy Aikman and Aaron Andrews, they, the big story – uh, within the game that leaked out afterwards, and now it's going to be a storyline heading forward about Drew Brees. I mean, they, they cited Sean Payton and Drew Brees saying that the plan is for Drew to be active on Sunday. Will he play? We don't know. In one of the stories, and I found it uh, the story just to be kind of odd. I, 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 I had to, re- I literally rewound it, the, the game coverage to hear it again. Aaron Andrews talking about they might just have Drew Brees be active and yet just be Teddy's backup for a week. And then Taysom Hill, they consider him a tight end, per se, instead of a third quarterback. Uh, and then I know Sean and Drew were kind of, that's the plan. Or Sean was kind of shaky about it afterwards and not wanting to talk about it, even though he's the one who talked about it to <laughs> right. them. You know, I always find that funny. But still, uh, Jeff, what's your sense of this plan? I mean, because... 
I can look if he's healthy, play him. If he's not, don't. I mean, they're in a situation where they can certainly take the, the side of caution if they want to. I think what happened, and you and I have seen this happen many times in the past, Sean Payton in one of the production meetings with the Fox staff told them what was what was going on and they reported it. And then he's backtracking uh in in public, which is he's done many times before. Uh, to just try and be crafty with the game plan. He wants to create some doubt in the mind of the Arizona Cardinals coaching staff as they go through the game plan starting today for the game on Sunday. And it's just a lot of subterfuge and kind of silliness because Arizona surely knows right now that probably Drew Brees is going to play. And if he's not, they'll be prepared for Teddy Bridgewater. So it's it's just Sean uh, playing the mental warfare and uh, trying to – create some doubt in the mind of the Cardinals. What I heard uh, in the locker room from a couple people is that Drew has told the staff he's healthy and, and is ready to play and wants to play uh, this week. And so if he's ready, he's a Hall of Famer, he's going to play, I, I would think. Uh, but I think they're just trying to also create a little doubt in the mind of the Cardinals and want to see how he does in practice this week because he's already said publicly a, a couple of times he's going to practice this week with the team. So I think they'll all make that evaluation after they see him work on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I asked Bridgewater after the game about it, and he deferred as well. So you're right, Larry. It's going to be the storyline of the week uh, for the Saints in a game that probably wouldn't uh, generate much headlines, but now you got Drew Brees possibly coming back a little earlier than expected, uh, which is not a surprise, I think, to anybody that knows Drew Brees um, but I'm with you. If he's not 100%, why play him right now the way the team's playing? Jeff, I also find it's always funny that these kind of storylines uh, from inside production meetings, they typically happen when Troy Aikman's around or Tony mm-hmm. Romo is around. I feel yep. like because Sean knows them so well. Can't help himself. He sometimes he gets – yes, he can't help himself. He gets a little too excited. Uh, and that's when the uh, member of uh, – well, I guess last year uh, when you uh, you got the uh, excitement about Taysom Hill long before, say, Troy Aikman did uh, and, and put it out there. But then once Troy Aikman said it about Taysom Hill, Steve Young, this, that, the other, that's when it really kind of hit uh, nationally. But still, uh, yeah, sometimes he gets a little overeager and just excited like a giddy kid, I feel like, sometimes when he gets in those meetings. And, and uh, hey, Kudos to the Fox staff for reporting what's being said. So I got to give them credit. And uh, now we're going to be on uh, Drew Brees' watch. And uh, hey, I'll, I'll give you an example of that, Larry. Just, just I don't mean to cut you off, but it's kind of I think insight to the listeners out there that don't get to see kind of behind the curtain the way you and I do sometimes. But after the game, what game was it last year that the Saints faked the punt with Taysom Hill? Was that the Eagles' playoff game? Where they faked the punt and Taysom got the first down. I well, they've it done it a few times. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember. Right. Yeah, so I think I'm, it was a home game in the playoffs where the the Eagles had kind of had the momentum early. Saints fake it, get the first down with Taysom. The point is, I was talking to, I went up to Peyton after his post game press conference. So after the when, after he's at the podium and he's just in his office, and Peter King and I were talking to him, and I did my whole story on the fake punt call, and during that conversation. He was talking to us, and he and, and, and Peter King brought up to him, oh, he's, he reminds me of Tim Tebow, and all. he's like, and he was just saying, he's way better than Tim Tebow. You know what he is? He's Steve Young. He was saying Steve Young back then, 
about how good uh, Taysom Hill was and that he thought he was Steve Young. And then to your point, what did, what did it take all the way to this preseason where the Saints were on a preseason game on NBC and Dan Fouts says, Sean Payton compared him to Steve Young to us, and then it blows up everywhere. But he'd been saying it privately for months earlier than that. And you're right, it, 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 he can't help himself sometimes. It spills out in these production meetings. So I would, I would tell listeners out there, when you hear something like that watching a Saints game, it's almost always coming from Sean Payton in one of these production meetings, and it's almost always true. Well, also, to, the, to that point, if you listen to the radio broadcast, which we don't really do too much either, uh, but any kind of insight, say, if Zach Streif and Deuce McAllister are saying it, that you know where exactly yes. where it's coming from, more than ever, even more than what it used to be back when, say, Jim Henderson was doing it in Hokie because those are players and Sean's talking to them, so... Uh, it's you know it, it, you know it, the information it it just depends on if Sean likes she's going to give it to you and so that's why uh, uh, you know sometimes you and me get information sometimes we get yelled at you know that's just kind of the nature of the journalism beast uh, with, with, with Sean Payton but Jeff of course that's going to be a big storyline going forward I know we're going to talk about that in our podcast later on this week which uh, typically airs on Thursday and I see no reason why it won't be airing on Thursday this time. But, Jeff, let's switch gears here. Uh, Mississippi State, we knew this would be a game where LSU would go in as a decided favorite. Uh, We didn't maybe think – Vegas thought maybe it would have been a little closer uh, than maybe you and me thought. Uh, It could be the old potential trap game. And uh, it's almost like LSU got off to that sleepy start, but once they got rolling, they got rolling and – uh, this will prepare them for a big-time matchup, top-10 matchup once again, LSU taking on Auburn this Saturday. Yeah, and that, that game uh, kind of played out exactly like I thought. I thought LSU would be a little slow out of the starting gate, and then they would get it going. And it just shows you this offense right now is uh, it's almost impossible to stop. Joe Burrow's in complete command. And uh, they're going to put up points uh, literally against anybody they play, I think. I don't know anybody that's going to slow them down. You're going to be at the Auburn game this week. Auburn's got a very good defense. It'll be interesting to see if they can slow down LSU. I just – I don't see it. I mean, there, it, there's so many answers for Joe Burrow. He's so good at seeing the field, finding the open receiver, that I think uh, it's going to be very difficult for Auburn to keep up with LSU once they get going. I think it'll be a very similar – kind of game as we saw with Florida where they they hung in there for a while and the LSU staff made the adjustments and they pulled away late Uh, but I was impressed with how LSU was able to come back after such a big emotional game against Florida go on the road in a very hostile environment and take care of business yeah and Jeff when you look at just kind of the way they started slow and you're thinking oh you never know and, and this that and the other and it's this team is unlike a lot of teams that we've seen uh, where you might be able to stub your toe. And we've even seen it. I'll, I'll just go back to what, 2003 when they lost at Florida. You know, they were a better team than Florida that year, and they even stubbed their toe somewhere along the line. And so it's just a different team. And you could you could just tell by uh, how they're – give them credit too for all their coaching and this, that, and the other. And we have a lot uh, in the past. But – uh, it seems like this team is more prepared and more, uh, I guess, mentally focused for every game, much less, uh, you know, the big games coming up against, of course, number nine Auburn and that 
will set up against the game, which you'll be going to in Tuscaloosa in a couple weeks when LSU will take on Alabama. Yeah, you know, I wrote my column last week um, about how the perception of the program has changed so dramatically in such a short period of time, especially now what Burrow's doing at quarterback. Uh, you know, the, I talked to Ed Ogeron last Thursday about that, and he talked about how the top quarterbacks in the country now are calling this calling LSU. They're getting involved with quarterbacks they never would have been involved with before. And unfortunately, you know, it's not going to probably happen until the class of 2021. That's how recruiting works. Everybody's so far out in front developing relationships. Most of the quarterbacks from the 2020 class were still in that wait-and-see mode. They'd been told LSU was going to change their offense, and we've all heard that so many times. I think everyone was like, yeah, sure, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, now they're seeing it. And all the quarterbacks in the 2021 class now are involved. The LSU's involved with some of the elite quarterbacks in the country. And it's just changed overnight with what the offense has done. I mean, if you watch LSU play and you're a, a top quarterback, why would you not want to play in that system? We've seen it all these years with the Saints. It's so quarterback friendly. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater is a perfect example of it. Um, if you put the time in and put the work in the film room in preparation, the offense is going to work for you, and it's going to allow you to be successful as long as you put in the work. And Joe Burrow has exploded this year. And I think, Larry, I think he's got a real legitimate shot to win the Heisman if he can put up a big game this week against Auburn and then come back against Alabama as well. Because uh, I really think it's starting to boil down to maybe a three-man race between him, Tua, and Jalen Hurts. And I just, as a Heisman voter, it's going to be hard for me to vote for Jalen Hurts. Nothing against him, but like three Oklahoma quarterbacks in a row winning the Heisman, I start to think that's a system more than it is the player. And I've seen Jalen Hurts at Alabama, and I just have a hard time voting for him. And then say if Joe Burrow and LSU happen to beat Alabama, that eliminates Tua, in my mind. I mean, it it would. And then you just have to look at the quality of the opponent. And that's why uh, LSU is continuing to get – number one votes in the AP poll because uh, even though right now Alabama's one, LSU's two, but they're continuing to get first place votes uh, because of the equality of the opponent. And a lot of, say, the power rankings, I'd say, look, you, you can look at our our own. We do a power ranking from like number one to 130. And the last couple of weeks, I think it's uh, our national writer, Chris Benini. I think he does them, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And... He has had LSU number one for weeks. Stuart Mandel has had LSU number one for weeks because of the equality of the opponents that they played. And uh, look, if LSU puts up another impressive game um, this week, it would be another top 10 opponent that they would beat. And so it's, you know, I think the real interesting part of this as far as the Heisman race and then the, the race for the college football playoff would begin is if LSU loses to Alabama and doesn't even get into the SEC championship game, that's going to be, you know, obviously all these other teams, you're looking to see Ohio State and Clemson and Oklahoma and even Penn State, all of them are undefeated. You're thinking maybe one of them has to fall off or two of them have to fall off maybe, but LSU's resume, I still think, would be better than all of theirs. So uh, that's when I think it's really going to get dicey if that were to happen. Yeah, th- this this college football playoff race is going to get really interesting here in the next two months because it looks like you've got five teams that have separated themselves from the pack. 
and I don't know who's going to lose. Obviously, one between LSU and Alabama is going to lose, but that's going to be such a quality loss that you're right. It's going to keep them in the in the picture should someone else stub their toe. And getting back to the Heisman, uh, Larry, uh, I agree. It's uh, whoever wins that game between Tua and Burrow is probably going to vault to the head of the race. And I don't know if people understand quite just how landmark this is that Joe Burrow, a quarterback for LSU, I mean, the last quarterback to be really in the race was Tommy Hodson back in 1990. I mean, we're talking three decades. LSU has not had a quarterback really involved. Jamarcus Russell was never a Heisman candidate. LSU tried to start a campaign for Leonard Fournette. That fizzled out quickly. He had a bunch of injuries. And internally, I know uh, the administration has has discussed launching a campaign, like an actual official campaign, sending out mailers and doing a lot of social media. And they've been hesitant to do it. Uh, but I know Ed Ogeron now, he wants them to do it. He, he was at L, uh, USC when when Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and those guys, uh, he's seen the difference uh, that a, a Heisman can can make for a program. And if Joe Burrow were to win the Heisman, what that does for LSU football going forward in recruiting and the perception and image of the program, uh, I think would be you know astronomical in terms of changing the perception of the program. Well, it's funny you say that just because, I don't know, I feel like we were talking maybe last week about how that the LSU didn't want to do that and didn't feel like they, they needed to do that. And so it's, I guess, week to week. It's changed quickly. Yeah, the, well, the closer you're getting probably to Alabama, I think maybe people are uh, inside the building are like, all right, this is real. Like They knew it was real, but now it's like real, real. And so they want to get out ahead of it. And I'll just go look at our straw poll. Uh, it was published uh, Monday morning. And right now, it is overwhelming that Joe Burrow would win the Heisman. We have we go first, second, and third place voters. And, it's, of course, this is from all of our staff, from uh, those that cover individual teams to our college football national writers. And Joe Burrow has 135 points uh, and has 40 first place votes. And just to compare, Jalen Hurts, seven first place votes. Tua Tagovailoa. Two first place votes. Justin Fields with one first place vote. So uh, Joe Burrow is getting all of the attention from our straw poll voters. And so, what's the point in? Oh my gosh, we need to push. The push I feel like is already there. I mean, it's uh, and if if you don't look, might as well let's just call it the push tush. If if uh, Zach von Rosenberg's <laughs> picture uh, of Joe Burrow's butt on the Heisman doesn't win you the Heisman. Nothing will. That's that's it. That's the list. That's the that's the photo you send out. Joe Burrow's naked butt on the Heisman. The end. You're welcome, LSU. What great You're welcome. What great pocket awareness, Larry. I mean, <laughs> the awareness to pull your pants up in the middle of the play. That was amazing. And here's the other thing that Ogeron said that I think is totally true, and makes a perfect sense for LSU. This They know that if they do a Heisman campaign for Burrow, it's not going to affect Joe Burrow at all. And I think the maturity of Joe Burrow and the fact that he's a coach's son and a gym rat and a film nerd, they know he's going to continue to prepare. It's not going to go to his head. He's not going to get distracted by it. Maybe some other players, it could happen, but not Joe Burrow. And I think that gives them more confidence in going forward 
and doing a campaign for him. Yeah, he's a kid who's dealt with all this. He's the one who's put it on basically on his back. Remember back at the Manning Passing Academy, 40, 50, 60. Of course, that made headlines about points yep. being scored. And what have they done? Exactly what they've said. And yeah, he is he is the ultimate leader, the ultimate mature quarterback. And it's it's really been incredible to watch. And certainly got a few more games left in his LSU career. And certainly bigger aspirations than just where they are right now. And so uh, we will all be watching, as you alluded to, I will be covering LSU-Auburn with our own Brody Miller. Of course, we'll talk more about this game heading up uh, to up to the game on our Thursday podcast as well. And then you'll be covering LSU-Alabama in a couple of weeks. And so we will, uh, along with Brody Miller and I'm sure some others with The Athletic. And so uh, we'll have it all taken care of. But Jeff, real quick before we wrap up the pod... I went to Tulane, Memphis. We don't have to give a ton of time to this because, unfortunately, uh, that was the exact opposite performance that they thought they would give and that I thought they would give. And it was just a blowout of massive proportion. And even Willie Fritz after the game, uh, you know, Darnell Mooney after the game, saying they did not see this coming. And it was it looked like Tulane teams of old. And it was yep. totally, to me, I was taken aback. And I think Willie Fritz and his staff are wondering what in the hell just happened uh, because they they Memphis just wiped the floor with them. And I, I don't feel like that should have happened. No, they looked to me like they just weren't ready to play. I mean, I think one of the first things that shows up when a team isn't ready to play is some of the basics, the fundamentals, and tackling was just atrocious. I mean, I don't know how many times. What was the, run, uh, the running back for M- Memphis that had such a big game? Uh, Oh, yeah. the 200 yards uh, received. Yeah, I, I'm blacking Gold Wayne or something like that. I can't remember his name. I should know better if we're going to talk about this on the podcast. But point is, he broke numerous tackles numerous times, and he's not like Leonard Fournette out there. I just thought it looked like the old Tulane days where the defense was just not there, and that's not the Tulane defense we've seen the last couple of years. And it just kind of snowballed on them. And Memphis obviously needed that game. They were coming off a loss. But it was not what the program needed at this point. I mean, it's one thing to lose. It's another thing to lose in that fashion. And I thought it was a huge setback for them. It was Kenneth Gainwell, 104 yards rushing and a touchdown. Also caught nine passes for 203 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, He smoked them. (laughs) And so it was was something that, uh, yeah, it seemed like – it seemed like after the game, Willie Fritz didn't want to go overboard and say, like, oh, my gosh, what what just happened? But you know internally uh, they get back and they go watch the film, and they're like, what the hell just happened? And so I'm with you. I, I put in my column after that game that this isn't a loss that should taint what they've accomplished so far, and yet the last thing you want is this for, for this to snowball to where we co- we reverse back to the point it's like, oh my gosh, they're struggling to get a bowl bid because the teams they've got to play going forward. Uh, We've talked about this uh, a good bit on the pod already. The only gimme I see left is Tulsa. Then you've got to, you you know, you start, you play at Navy, at Temple, and you play at home against Central Florida and SMU, and Tulsa is kind of smashed in the middle there. So uh, you better get this thing right, or some of these teams with some tricky offenses – they're going to run right through you too. So this is uh, certainly something they've got to fix. Yeah, and I watched SMU play last week, and they've got it going on over there. I mean, that's an impressive offense uh, with uh, you know a very sophisticated passing attack. 
So that that season finale against SMU, like this is not should not be a season ender for Tulane. They've got still so much they can accomplish. So it's not like one loss is going to derail them. They just cannot allow it to, to, like you said, snowball and affect them going forward because they had such momentum and uh, they were so close to getting ranked. Now it's going to be, can they, the leaders on the team, the coaching staff, regather, regroup, and kind of get refocused and just put that in your rearview mirror because there's so much left for this team to accomplish. They can still win the AAC. They can still win the West Division, get in the championship game. Uh, but they've got to put that game behind them. Absolutely. So, all right, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast here on the Athletics Podcast Network. Of course, you're listening to this one on free. Go uh, check it out, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Uh, Subscribe, rate, review, do all that good stuff. Of course, you can listen to this behind the Athletics paywall as well. And our Thursday pods are only behind the Athletics paywall. So uh, if you don't have the subscription, jump on theathletic.com slash dunk and holder or theathletic.com slash new orleans and just a quick cross promotion if you want to go listen to probably bears hell and get their end of the story to hear what happened on the yesterday's uh, win by the saints uh, you can go check out uh, our coverage from our own adam johns of course the athletics beat writer for the bears uh, his signature bears analysis with co-host adam hogue uh, you can go listen to that. And I've already seen Adam promote Adam, uh, his, his other colleague, Adam Hogue, his epic meltdown. So you might want to go listen to that. So you can go listen to that Hogue and Johns on the Athletics Podcast Network. So for Jeff Duncan, I'm Larry Holder. Look, we'll talk Saints. We'll talk LSU in our next pod. We will talk Pelicans. Their season opener is tomorrow night, as in Tuesday night. So we will talk about that. Of course, the big story, Zion's injury, will maybe have a better feel of where that is. and we'll, So we'll sprinkle in definitely some Pelicans on this podcast because we talk all things New Orleans sports that are important, Southeast Louisiana. So for Jeff Duncan, I'm Larry Holder. Thanks for joining us.